0: Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Craft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening, where we will continue our reflections into 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We are midway through chapter 6. By the grace of God, go I. Hopefully we get into chapter 7 this evening. But before we get into that, as promised yesterday evening i will speak to this call we have to speak frankly but before we get into that i wanted to follow up with something i talked about yesterday evening in particular the great story that comes to us from the archives of saint john vianney i have the actual account here saint john vianney had that extraordinary gift of being able to read hearts if one would question such a gift and i'm sure many of us do Uh, Take account this story, if you would. One day, a woman made her way to the parish. Seeing lines of people waiting to go to confession, she asked one of them the estimated wait time. About three days was the reply. Now, remember what I said yesterday. (laughs) Sometimes he would be in the confessional for up to 16, 17 hours. So you can imagine the line, and you can imagine the kind of confessor that he was. So the story continues. The woman could not wait, so she made her way into the church and up to the communion rail, where she got down on her knees and began to pray. The saintly pastor finished the confession he was hearing and excused himself to the next penitent. He walked over to the woman and said, He will be saved. The woman did not believe him. It turns out that the distressed woman's husband had been an official in the French Revolution he arrived at the point of despair, made his way to a bridge, jumped off, and died shortly after hitting the water below. So, she was rightly concerned about his eternal salvation. St. John Vianney explained that between the bridge and the water, the man had made an act of contrition. The widow was understandably baffled, as her husband had not lived a Catholic life on earth. The curé of ours asked her, Do you remember when you put up the shrine to our blessed mother in your home? Yes, she replied. Did he stand in the way? No, she responded. Well, it was through that act of openness that the Lord worked and prompted him just before his death to make that act of contrition. Wow. (laughs) I mean, not only should this kind of story give us hope, but it also should serve as a powerful example, my friends, Of the Lord's boundless mercy, especially as it relates to God's goodness, right? And the need for us to repent and the need for us to believe. Again, I just wanted to follow up with the more specifics of that story because I really felt like I didn't give that story justice as I was going through it yesterday evening. Now, yesterday I was also talking about St. Paul and how we read And what is it? Verse 11, this verse, we have spoken frankly to you. So we have this call to speak frankly. We have this call to speak honestly, openly and honestly. And and why? Because my dear friends, if we don't speak frankly, if we don't speak honestly, then what is going to happen? Those things that are on our heart to share will fester. And what you'll find happening is one day, two day, one week, two weeks down the road, it'll come up in a conversation and you'll blow up. Do not allow something to fester. Now, you have also heard me here on Seeds of Truth speak to the need to live in that poverty of silence, calling upon, invoking the presence of the Holy Spirit to invite you to speak when you need to speak. Brothers and sisters, if we want to speak better, What does the proverb say? We need to listen more. So we listen more, so to speak better. And if we want to speak better, we do need to adhere to those promptings of the Holy Spirit. So what else is going on here? Well, if we allow the non-spoken word to get the best of us, and we allow that to fester, what will we lose but that sense of gentleness, that sense of reverence, What do we read in 1 Peter 3 15? Give reasons for the hope that is inside of you, but do so in gentleness and reverence. Those all important virtues that you have heard me speak about so much and virtues that are very important because they really are the virtues that help build the bridge from which truth shall pass. Okay, so very important. If we do not make our peace, if we do not speak up when God is inviting us to speak up in just not our apologetic conversations, but even more specifically in those everyday conversations that we might find ourselves in with family members, with friends, it will fester and it will get the best of us. So speak openly, speak honestly, speak frankly, speak truthfully, right? This is what Paul did, and we imitate his virtue. All right, now chapter 6, verse 14, and I will go ahead and read, let's see here, all the way through chapter 7, verse 1. I think this is where it more or less ends out, where this theme ends out. All right, verse 14. Do not be yoked with those who are different, with unbelievers. For what partnership do righteousness and lawlessness have? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? What accord has Christ with Beliar? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will live with them and move among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore come forth from them and be separate, says the Lord, and touch nothing unclean. Then I will receive you, and I will be a father to you, And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Paul continues, chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of flesh and spirit, making holiness perfect in the fear of God. All right, so Paul's call for the Corinthians to be reconciled to him as Jesus' ambassador entails what? but they're repudiating anyone or anything that prevents them from walking in the way of Christ. Part of the problem in the church of Corinth is that some in the community have not fully repented of their former way of life. We have already talked about this, huh? Paul reminds the community of their identity as the temple of God and that they are God's children, God's beloved people, He exhorts them to be cleansed of all of their immorality so that they might grow in holiness for them to avoid profanity. Incidentally, my friends, what does the word profanity mean in the Latin? Profanum, outside the temple. What does the word temple mean? Well, templum means sacred. Okay, when we speak in profane words, we are outside of that which is sacred, outside of the very life and breath of God. So, Paul begins by admonishing the Corinthians not to be yoked with those who are different. Specifically to what? But those who are living in a sinful way, right? What is meant by being yoked with someone who is different? Well, Paul draws on two passages here from the Old Testament. The prohibition in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 10 against harnessing an ox and ass together for the purpose of plowing a field, and the prohibition in Leviticus chapter 19 verse 19 against cross-breeding animals. His point is this, as you can well imagine. There are persons with whom Christians ought not to associate, with whom a relationship is essentially incompatible with the relationship with Christ. He's not talking about association that would remove evangelization. No, we are to go to those, like Jesus Christ did, those who are on the margins, those who might be living in a more sinful way, to evangelize. Yes, always being humble, of course, of your own sin, but here he is more specifically talking about something much more detrimental, a much more uh, deeper association that is tied to pagan idols. Indeed, (laughs) He had warned the Corinthians in an earlier letter about the perils of associating too closely with their pagan neighbors because of the prevalence of their idolatrous practices. It's the Corinthians that were idolizing pagans. Now, Paul follows his initial admonition with a series of rhetorical questions that take the general form, what does X have in common with Y? In many ways, he's deliberating on his initial point. The answer expected for each of the five questions is what, but absolutely nothing. He's offering a rhetorical question that we might think more critically about his point. That point, which is to make clear that there are ways of behaving that are irreconcilable, irreconcilable with Christian life. So thus, the first question opposes righteousness to lawlessness. Here, Paul, at the most basic level, points to the contrast between a Christian lifestyle that keeps God's law and a pagan lifestyle that does not. Paul has taught that because of the impelling love of Jesus, the love that led him to die for all, remember 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 to 15, this love of Christ that compels us to love as Christ loved. So, as Paul teaches us to love like this, through the Spirit's empowerment, we are enabled to incarnate Christ's self-giving love. Because such a loving existence for others is the fulfillment of the law, he is saying it is utterly incompatible with any form of lawlessness, of not living in accord with God's will. My dear friends, we are to rid ourselves of a life of duplicity. This is what he's getting at. No, far too often we slip into this spirit of complacency where we are not active in ridding ourselves of those areas in our life that might lead us away from God. What he's doing here is saying this area in your life this aspect of your life is in direct contrast with a life of holiness. Similarly, Paul's second question contrasts light with darkness. He insists that Christians are what? Children of light in whose hearts God has shown the light of the gospel for the glory of God. Is that not what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, verse 6? we belong to the day. We who belong to the day are to conduct ourselves openly so that others can see that our works are done in God. On the contrary, the mark of the lawless is to act under the cover of darkness so that their works are not exposed. Okay, so he's contrasting light and darkness. The third question draws out the most fundamental distinction, that between Christ and Beliar. Incidentally, what does the word Beliar mean but wickedness, right? Paul's first reference to Christ Jesus was in connection with his yes, with his filial obedience to the Father that led him to offer his life on the cross. Jesus' faithful obedience to God is in stark contrast to Satan. Satan's disobedience resulted in his becoming what but God's archenemy. As the enemy of God, what does Satan do? Satan attempts to lure people into disobedience and sin. Can we not define sin simply as disobedience and maybe even better as breaking our father's heart? Every time my child is disobedient to me, he breaks my heart I understand that maybe he just didn't best understand this law, so I need to re-engage him so as to help him understand what he's doing. God wants to help us understand the significance of our disobedience, and he does so by disclosing revealed truth to us. Brothers and sisters, St. Paul wants to make it clear. There is absolutely no compatibility between Christ and Satan. And there ought to be no mutual fellowship between their adherents. The one who belongs to Christ is a believer. Or you can also translate that as faithful one, huh? The one who belongs to Satan is a unbeliever or faithless one. So you have the believer versus the unbeliever. You have the faithful one versus the faithless one. In the end, my friends, St. Paul wants us to see The Christians are distinguished by heeding our Lord's invitation to take only his yoke upon them. Is this not what he told us in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30? Only his yoke. That is the way of humility, gentleness, and what did we already talk about? Self-giving love. So while obedience to the law of Christ leads us to freedom. Adherence to Satan become slaves to disobedience and sin. Romans chapter 6 verse 16. The series of rhetorical questions reaches its climax at the beginning of verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? So Paul's evangelization was directed in large part to who? but to pagans who worshipped a number of different gods. Paul exhorted his Gentile listeners to turn away from idols and turn instead to the living and true God and serve him alone. There's only one God. The gods represented by idols are as dead as the materials from which their likeness are made. This is what the great prophets revealed to us. As I'm reflecting into this, I am made to think of the encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Remember those words from Jesus where he asks that question, do you have a husband? And she says no, and he says, yes, you're right. You've had five husbands, and now you are called to worship the one true God. What was that exchange all about? Well, she was a Samaritan woman. She was from the town of Samaria. Samaria. Now, the Samaritan worshiped who? But five false gods. Who were those gods? In the Hebrew, the Baals, B-A-A-L-S. That Hebrew word translates as husband. So when Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, you're right, you have no husband. You've had five husbands, though. He's highlighting the false gods that she worshiped. And that you are to no longer worship those false gods, but the one true God, who was I before you. And I am made to think of that, well, because here we are talking about pagan idols and the false gods. He's writing to a people who were worshiping false gods, who were worshiping false husbands. And what St. Paul wants us to understand is there's only one true husband. Why is the greatest image in all of the Old Testament that of the husband and bride? Because God wants us to see that we are called to enter into this kind of bridal union with him, whereby his very life invades our soul. This is the kind of intimacy that Jesus was about, and this is the kind of intimacy that St. Paul wants the people of Corinth to understand. And just not the Gentiles, but those who claim to be Christian. You cannot be fully Christian if you partly belong to something that is unchristian. You have to belong to Jesus Christ totally and entirely. What's more, my friends, this is why that beatitude on the pure of heart is so important. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. The word for purity in the Greek is katharos. To just not be pure, clean, unstained, but more specifically in the Greek, to be without mixture, to be one thing, to be single-hearted. Of course, in this case, single-hearted for God. That your heart thinks about one thing, and that thing, of course, is a person, the person of Jesus Christ. So when our hearts are pure, When our hearts are undefiled, unprofaned, then we will see God as he is. This is why Paul says to the people of Corinth, please stop living your duplicitous lifestyle. It will be your ruin. Okay, so just extending our reflection to these series of questions, Paul's fifth question also serves to set up the statement that follows We are the temple of the living God. I mean, do you hear those words? We are the temple of the living God. Brothers and sisters, the community has been established by the new covenant ministry. The church is the place where God now dwells. Indeed, Paul's reference to the living God echoes what he has already said in verse 3, chapter 3, verses 2 to 3 where he alluded to these prophetic promises by describing the spirit of the living God being written into the very heart of the people of Corinth. Note that it is first and foremost the community that he identifies as the temple of God. While it is quintessential that we understand every Christian as a temple of God because God's spirit is present within him or her, Paul's emphasis is on the Spirit's presence within the collective body of Christ. It is because the church is God's temple that we are warned to not be yoked with unbelievers or faithless ones. Now, Paul turns to Scripture to substantiate his claim that the church is the temple of God. The word cited beginning in the middle of this verse and continuing through verse 18 have the appearance of being a single quotation, but if you look carefully, in reality, and this is very important, Paul has strung together a number of different passages, and it is illuminating to look at his biblical sources in order to appreciate what he attempts to communicate. You have heard me say in the past that every time you come across a verse and there is an Old Testament footnote That is what you call a rumble strip. You know, when you're coming up upon a a toll and there's those rumble strips, those strips that are telling you to slow down if you're going too fast. I, I think we have that tendency to just go through sacred scripture without always reflecting critically about what we are reading. Old Testament footnotes are rumble strips. Old Testament footnotes are telling you to slow down and stop so as to understand better what you are reading. Now, the first part of this scriptural quotation that I had read for you, found at the end of verse 16, combines Leviticus chapter 26, verses 11 to 12, and Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 27. The context of the Leviticus passage is the blessings God promised to bestow on Israel If they obeyed the divine commandments, such obedience would distinguish them as God's holy people. The final and most important blessing promised is that God would live with them and move among them. Is that not what we read? That God would live with them and move among them on their journey to the promised land. So while both passages have this covenant formula, I will be their God and they shall be my people. I am yours and you are mine. The Ezekiel passage is set in the context of the promise of an everlasting covenant, this covenant of peace. So what does Paul mean by combining these two texts? Well, the quoted words point to the fulfillment of what, my friends? But the new covenant promises through the death and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah, and through the outpouring of God's Spirit in the hearts of all the Corinthians. Paul wants the church at Corinth to fully appreciate that God now lives indeed within them, and by extension, the entire church. Paul next cites a combination of words from Isaiah chapter 52 verse 11 and Ezekiel chapter 20 verse 34. The Isaiah passage exhorts the Israelites including the priests bearing the sacred vessels, to return from exile, come forth from them and be separate, and to avoid impurity. What do we read there? Touch nothing unclean. The Ezekiel passage, I will receive you, likewise is set in the context of God's calling Israel to return from exile. So how does Paul adapt these words for the Corinthians? They are to separate themselves from all who would endanger their identity as God's people, especially from pagan associates who would lead them to idolatry. And as Paul speaks to it, they're also to avoid immorality in all its forms. In a way, we are decoding the Old Testament, right? My dear friends, when you get to the heart of it, This is what doing theology is all about, especially biblical theology. You're reading the New Testament, in this case St. Paul, quotes the Old Testament, and now you're made to stop, consider just not the Old Testament passage, but in doing so its context, so as to understand what Paul is trying to say. Only then will you begin to grasp the deeper meaning of what Paul is trying to say, and ultimately, how you are to apply this to your life, right? To get the fullness of the text, roll up your sleeves, work in the tall grass, and allow the Spirit to move. Okay, we're gonna have to wrap up our discussion, and we're kind of doing this in midstream. We are out of time. We will pick up here where we left off in verses 17 to 18, and we will do so by doing more biblical theology so as to grab hold of what St. Paul is after, his wisdom and his beautiful insights that he desires for us 2,000 years later to contemplate that we might become the best version of who God is calling us to be. Amen. Amen. Let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you.